Father in heaven, as we open now, for the last time, at least in this season, the book of the prophet Joel. We open this book recognizing these are your words. Joel, just yet another man inspired by God to speak your words, to write your words. Thank you for preserving your word, Father, that we might feast upon it tonight. Thank you for, Lord, repeating yourself, because we're a bit slow, and it's good, Lord, to be reminded of these things. Thank you for fresh revelation, because that always comes. And I just ask, Father, that you will ready our hearts not just for the receiving of your word tonight, but to hear the voice of our Lord Jesus call us home. Ready our hearts, Father, for this age to be done. Ready our hearts that we might have our eyes fixed on the coming of Jesus Christ and that our minds would be thinking constantly about the coming of our Lord Jesus and that our words would be speaking the gospel of our Lord Jesus until you come. However you do it, Father, and it is beyond me, but I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us fresh and new words that we might even speak this week. By your word and through the counsel of your Holy Spirit now, we come before you to study in Jesus' name. Amen. Joel chapter 2, and we're going to pick up right where we left off. Down in verse 28, it is a brief but powerful prophecy. It has a laser-sharp focus. As we talked about a week ago Sunday, Obadiah was the first one to coin the phrase, or use the phrase, the day of the Lord. But Joel develops it. Joel describes it in detail, at length, from one end to the other. And I remind you, when we began this, that the best way to consider this day of the Lord is to do so from the perspective of the Jewish calendar. The Jewish day begins at night, sundown. And so the day of the Lord, as it were, begins at night. He describes a dark, calamitous night of tribulation. It's that hour that Jesus said is about to come upon the whole world. Revelation chapter 3 verse 10 tells us. And by the way, note that there's teaching out there that would say that the tribulation is only going to happen in and to Israel. Or the tribulation is only for some aspect of the Middle East. That's actually a recent teaching in prophecy that it's just going to come upon the Middle East. Well, that makes no sense when Jesus Himself said it's going to come upon the whole world. It is a global cataclysmic event that is so well described. We have already covered it numerous times before we ever opened up the book of Joel. We have come to the day of the Lord. We have talked about the day of the Lord. Perhaps it's much larger than you think because often when we talk about the day of the Lord, we're thinking about the night. We're thinking about the calamity. We're thinking about that seven-year tribulation. Well, as we already talked about, the day of the Lord is much broader than that. It begins with that tribulation. It continues right on through the millennial kingdom, finally to end up with the day of God, which is the judgment at the end of that thousand-year reign. This tribulation, however, that Joel deals quite a bit with in the first chapter and a half, well, it's just the start of the day. And that's good news. The day begins at night. It was a hard day's night for David when he wrote Psalm 30. 
And in writing Psalm 30, I know I just took a left turn on you, go with me. In writing Psalm 30, David's looking back and thinking about tough times. And thinking about the dark night. And thinking about heartache and difficulty and the struggle. For, for David, when he was anointed, it took another ten years before he would even get to the throne. Ten years of being chased down, of living out of caves as a, as a fugitive, with Saul breathing down his neck. Well, finally, finally he takes the throne. Finally, he conquers Jerusalem. Finally, he sets up his capital there, the city of David. And finally, he brings the Ark of the Covenant up to Mount Moriah to sit atop what is today the Temple Mount in the first house of the Lord in Jerusalem, which was not the Temple. The Temple was built by Solomon, but the first house of the Lord was set up by David. It was David's tabernacle. And Psalm 30 is David thinking about this as he writes a song of dedication for the house of the Lord. He says in Psalm 30 verse 5, His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Which is why when you look at the day of the Lord, His anger is but for a moment. Seven years. His favor is for a lifetime. A thousand years and then right on into eternity. That's the way God functions. David says, weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. He says in Psalm 30, verse 10, Hear, O Lord, be gracious to me, O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. See, that's the desire of the Lord. And it's good to know that and think about that, especially when you're in the dark night when you're going through tribulations or difficulties or struggles or pain, that you know this is temporary. It may last for some time, but the joy of the Lord is so much greater and is just around the turn of the clock. It's coming in the morning. So long after the, or right after the long night of worldwide tribulation, morning breaks. Bright and clear on the day of the Lord, Chapter 2, verse 28. It will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my male and female servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. Now that is a promise grasped, held, clung to by the church. Right? Because that's what Peter quoted. On Pentecost, Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, as the Apostles are... Well, let's let's turn there. Acts chapter 2. Go to Acts chapter 2. And watch what happens, because there's a question we asked when we first opened the book of Joel that we have to revisit and really think through carefully now. Was this prophecy of Joel fulfilled on the day of Pentecost? I will pour out my spirit, the Lord says. And of course, we grab hold of that, and we should. It's a promise that the church is grafted into. But I'll tell you something, it is not a promise originally for the church. Watch this. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves. I'd love to see how that works. You know, how does tongues of fire distribute? Can you go there and you're over here and you're above him. 
and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was getting them, giving them utterance. Note two things. First of all, we already know that from John chapter 20, they had received the Spirit. Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive my Spirit. Well, now they're filled with the Holy Spirit. What, didn't it take the first time? What we're seeing here is what Jesus described, what John the Baptist described as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's what the Bible calls it. It's not what some Pentecostal group picked up. It's what the Bible calls it. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we see it right here on Shavuot. The day of Pentecost. Now, one other thing I want you to note here, and that's tradition says, and I know this, that they were all in the upper room when this happened. In fact, when you go to Israel today, they take you to a room and they say, this is the upper room. The problem is the upper room is probably about 15 feet underground. Okay, so it's not the upper room. It's the traditional site thought of that people like to go and just think about what happened. But one of the passages always read there is Acts chapter 2. Well, what happened right here in the upper room? Well, it says that the noise, like a violent rushing wind, verse 2, filled the whole house where they were sitting. Acts chapter 1 says they were all gathered together in the upper room, which is why people say in Acts chapter 2 they assume that that's where they were. But the problem is, well, a few things. The word house there can also imply the temple. The temple. I think they were in the temple. I don't think they were in the upper room. And, and for a various different reasons. One thing, Luke 24, verse 53, volume 1 of Luke's two-volume work, he ends by saying they were continually in the temple praising God. And then he continues on in the book of Acts. And again, it's Pentecost, which is the Greek name. The Jewish people would have called it Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, and they would all have been at temple that day to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. Well, couldn't they have gone back to the upper room and, and then be there when all the... Yeah, I suppose they could. I wasn't there. I don't know. We're in a little bit of surmise here. But we know at some point that day, if they're good Jews, and they all were, they would have been at temple. Not to mention the fact that the Bible describes dozens of tribes, nationalities, and tongues gathered together all in the same place. I've been in the upper room, and there ain't that much room. <laughs> And the upper room today, as I said, is not the upper room that they were originally in, which was probably a lot smaller. How do you get all those people in there? That used to bug me. Unless the house is the house of the Lord. And they were gathered in the house of the Lord for the celebration of Shavuot, and the Holy Spirit came upon them at the temple. Doesn't that make sense that He would? He'd filled the temple before. The Shekinah glory filled Solomon's temple. Jesus the glory of the Father in the Son walked into, filled the second temple? I think they were in the temple. Verse 5, Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Tongue, glossolalia. The tongues that they were speaking were languages, clear human languages that everybody heard. Just pointing out the obvious here. Verse 7, they were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia 
and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking out of the, or speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking, saying, They're just filled with sweet wine. Because you all know when you get drunk, you can speak another language. <laughs> right? But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. I love that. That just cracks me up. I don't know why. I don't know if it gets you like it does me. Listen to what he said. He said, these guys aren't drunk. It's only the third hour of the day. We don't get drunk till a lot later. Is that what he's saying? You know? No, he's just pointing out the obvious. He says, verse 16, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Now I want you to stop there just for a minute and consider something. What is arguably the most powerful and noteworthy outpouring of the Holy Spirit in any historical record, would you agree with that? That here the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes on the apostles and wow, there is power aflowing in that place. This is a move of God unlike any previously. This is historical. This is amazing. This is supernatural. This is phenomenal. And what does Peter do? He says, hey, let's have a Bible study. Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Joel, he says. And he begins to quote from the prophet. And no one was rolling on the floor. And no one was barking. (laughs) Or laughing hysterically. No one was glued to the wall. Have you heard of that? Holy Spirit glue. You can't just get it at your hardware store. There there are those who who believe when the Spirit moves that that, that they have actually been glued to the floor, glued to the wall for hours by the Holy Spirit. No one in the context of the most amazing moment in Holy Spirit history, no one was out of control. They weren't. Again, just pointing out the obvious here, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, in this great treatise about the Holy Spirit, we'll get to one day, Lord willing, 1 Corinthians 14.32, he says this, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Where there is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, if you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, if you are filled with this amazing power of the Spirit for one work or another, you are in control. God still doesn't make you do anything that you're unaware of. You don't fall into a trance. That's not what the Bible teaches. 1 Corinthians 14.33 God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. You don't wake up and realize, I have been in a Holy Spirit stupor. It's not how it works. Because God doesn't seek to confuse, but to reveal to illuminate, to clarify. And so in this moment, as the apostles are all filled with the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, the Spirit is moving, they are preaching the Word of God. And the power of the Spirit at that time was that people would get saved. 3,000 were that day. Amazing. It's no strange fire. It's no outlandish behavior. 
But there is something beautifully instructive in this. And note, we see Jesus' Spirit at work in perfect harmony with the Word of God. And the Spirit loves the Word. And the Word declares the work of the Spirit. And there is a unity there that shouldn't be missed. As in so often happens, the either-or version of the church. It's either all Word or all Spirit. God says, I've given you both. My Word and my Spirit to function in perfect harmony. Well, verse 17, going on, still in the book of Acts chapter 2, quoting Joel, Peter says, It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So was the word of the Lord in Joel fulfilled at Pentecost. Here's the answer as far as I understand. Fulfilled? Yes. Consummated? No. It began to be fulfilled on that day. The realization of God's willingness to pour out His Spirit on all mankind began at Pentecost, but it will not reach its final culmination until the outset of the Millennial Kingdom, when truly, and get this, the prophecy will be fulfilled, the Spirit poured out on all mankind. All mankind. How many people received this outpouring? Twelve? 120 if all the disciples received it at that moment? Or 3,000 if you want to include everybody who got baptized and filled with the Spirit that day? Okay, we can go 3,000. Hardly all man. We got more illegal aliens coming in on a daily basis than that. Hardly all mankind, as the Lord said, it's going to be all mankind. And I have come to trust and believe over the years... That when God says something, He means it. That He is literal and specific. That He would not say He's going to pour His Spirit out on all mankind and just nail 3,000 people. All mankind. And by the way, whose sons and daughters will prophesy? And whose old men will dream dreams? And whose young men will see visions? You can go back to Joel. Gang, the Lord is speaking to Israel in this prophecy. Has all Israel been filled with the Holy Spirit yet? Has that happened? Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24, the Lord says, I will take you from the nations, I will gather you from all the lands, and I will bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. By the way, when you're spirit filled, that's the deal. When you are filled with the spirit of God, you are Walking in His statutes. You're careful to observe His ordinances because you love Him and you love His Word and that's where you want to be. He says, You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so you will be My people and I will be your God. 
So back in Joel, what the prophet is describing here, I believe, is something that began, yes, began on the Feast of Weeks. Yes, it began at Pentecost. And it's been filling up ever since then as people are filled with the Holy Spirit. God pouring out His Spirit like He never did before. Remember, in the times prior to Jesus' coming, well, He he didn't pour out His Spirit on the nation at large. He would give a king His Spirit. Or the prophets would receive, or perhaps a priest could receive the gift of His Spirit. But He didn't do it across all of Israel. This had never happened before. Part of the reason I think the people at Pentecost had trouble with it was they're looking at these guys and going, Oh, come on. First of all, fishermen... You know, not holy, unschooled, ordinary guys, except that they had been with Jesus. And they looked at them and said, this this is not the way it's done. Well, it hadn't been. But now the Lord says, anyone who comes to me, believing, anyone who receives me, as Peter said, anyone who repents and is baptized will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence of God. And... And He offers the baptism of His Holy Spirit, which is an outpouring of His Spirit, supernatural power to do what you can't do. In this case, it was speaking other languages. In your case, it could be anything from healing to compassion to grace to showing mercy to helps. Gift of the Spirit. It will find its final culmination in the day of the Lord. Back in Joel, picking up now in chapter 30. He says, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So some cataclysmic, amazing, huge things. Was there blood, fire, and columns of smoke on the day of Pentecost? Not as recorded in the Bible, and you would think that would be an important point to, to include if it had happened. The sun going dark, the moon blood Red? We're already one blood moon into the Tetrad. Right? (laughs) Of which many are intrigued. Four curiously consecutive lunar eclipses over 2014 and 2015. We've talked about these. But all four happening on the first and last Feast of Israel both years. On Passover 2014, it already happened. On Sukkot. Feast of Tabernacles, 2014. We will have another blood moon. The next blood moon will be on Passover, 2015. And the final one on Sukkot, 2015. Four in a row. In addition, I don't know if you've heard this, but right in the middle, there will be a solar eclipse. In the middle of these four blood moons, right between two and and three, a solar eclipse where the sun will go dark. So... So, Rick, are you saying the final fulfillment of Joel's prophecy is imminent? I've been saying this for ten years. And that's just in my life. There are guys long before me, um, the Apostle Paul has been saying it for 2,000 years, that the coming of Jesus is imminent, that we are to live ready. And whether or not the Tetrad is a sign in the heavens, and it may very well be, and it may not be, you big fans of it, it may not be. We may hit 2016 and then people are going to be going, but I had a Tetrad t-shirt, I can't wear it now. You know? Don't get hung up in the signs. We're not looking for blood moons, we're looking for Jesus. Okay, we're not looking for solar eclipses, we're waiting to hear Him call us home. And Jesus said, I want you ready. Whether there's a blood moon or not, I want you ready daily in these last days. He said, be on the alert. 
Matthew 24:42. You do not know which day your Lord is coming, but be sure of this that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert, and you would not have allowed his house, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. And the thing that does interest me about the whole Tetrad thing, I do find it interesting, intriguing, to look into this, think about it. And yet at the same time, we see the church get these little surges every now and then of excitement that maybe He might be coming back. What about four years ago before anyone was talking about this? Were we not to be as ready then as we are right now? And what if, perchance, we get into 2016? I can't even imagine, but what if we do? Do we become all bummed and discouraged and shut up for a while because the press was right, we are idiots? (laughs) Or do we remain vigilant and ready constantly for the coming of our Lord Jesus, which we know is going to happen? Not looking for blood moons listening for Jesus to call us home. Verse 32 of Joel chapter 2, And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now that draws us right up to the end. That takes us immediately out of the context of Pentecost, and in the context of the greater prophecy, now we're seeing something else. Mount Zion, Jerusalem, midway through the tribulation, where the faithful remnant of Israel are saved. Or they are rescued, they're delivered from this time of tribulation. Isaiah chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, prophesy of it. Obadiah, verse 17, says, On Mount Zion there will be those who escape, and it will be holy, and the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 9, I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, test them as gold is tested, they will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, They are my people, and they will say, The Lord is my God. Romans 11:26. All Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. So Paul, quoting Joel in Revelation chapter 12, verse 6. I'm throwing a lot of verses at you. It's just how we roll here. Revelation chapter 12, verse 6, tells us the woman who we know is Israel. And if you're not sure, read Revelation 12, verse 1. It's pretty obvious. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days, three and a half years. Revelation chapter 12 verse 14 says, And the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time. That is again three and a half years from the presence of the serpent. Deliverance. Deliverance for all who call upon the name of the Lord. Now, there are some who think the wings of the great eagle in Revelation 12.14 speak of an American airlift operation. And we've got the eagle. And so it's got to be America. If you've been keeping up with these things, you know, especially over this last couple of weeks, that Israel is feeling absolutely betrayed by the United States government. Because the U.S. government has decided to recognize and deal with terrorists. Something I didn't think was possible. 
The recently reunified Palestinian Authority, Fatah in the West Bank, and Hamas, a terrorist organization in Gaza, on the terrorist list, Hamas is now reunified with Fatah, and the U.S. government, this current administration has come out and said, we'll negotiate with them, we'll work with them. And Israel feels absolutely betrayed and are very concerned and are feeling right now, if you read these things, more isolated in this season than they have felt since 1948. I'm not really worried about an American airlift. If you ask my opinion, America is not a player in the last days for various reasons. But the bottom line is the wings of the great eagle. God is the only one who does not forget His people. He's the only one. Deuteronomy 32.11 Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, He spread His wings and caught them. He carried them on His pinions. He'll get them out. He will airlift them as it were. He'll carry them one way or another to the place He's prepared in the wilderness. And my friends, if God has not forgotten Israel, He has not forgotten you. Because He doesn't forget His people. And He doesn't betray a trust. And He doesn't turn His back. And I don't think He negotiates with terrorists, but let's continue on. After this rescue of the believing remnant of Israel, the prophet continues now to lay out a timeline. Watch this, chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations. Now we have just jumped from the end of the tribulation to the beginning of the millennial kingdom. I'll gather all the nations. I'll bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. They have also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they might drink. What that's saying is trading a boy into slavery to get some money to go spend the night with a prostitute. So a boy's life is worth one light, one night of prostitution. Or selling a girl into bondage to get enough dough to go buy yourself a bottle of wine and get drunk. And God says, this has happened. Actually, here He says, this will happen to my people. It has happened to His people. Levy tells us after the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, The tallest and most beautiful among the captured Jews were paraded through the streets of Rome. Typical. Those older than 17 were immediately sent to work as slaves in the Roman mines. Those under 17 were sold in the nations to the highest bidders. The slave markets were so glutted with Jewish slaves that enough buyers could not be found. These are children under the age of 17 sold for a bottle of wine, sold for a night with a prostitute. No wonder this world is going to come into judgment in the valley of Jehoshaphat. By the way, note this, jot it down in your Bibles, Jehoshaphat means God judges. God judges. Where is the valley of Jehoshaphat? You know it by another name. Revelation 16.16, they gather them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har Megeddon. That is Mount Megiddo. This is not Judgment Day that he's talking about. This gathering in the Valley of Megiddo, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, it's not Judgment Day in the traditional sense. 
in the biblical sense. That comes after the thousand year reign of Christ. So a thousand years later, the end of the millennial kingdom, that's judgment day where people who want to be judged by their deeds can be judged. That's Revelation 20 that describes that. This is a judgment at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Tribulation's over, the Lord gathers the nations, and right then and there, He judges the nations. It's an important distinction. And the evidence against them in this trial is threefold. God is going to judge the nations for scattering His people. He will judge the nations for splitting up His land. And He will judge the nations for selling out His children. Scattering His people, splitting up His land selling out His children. As we see in verses 2 and 3, they've scattered My people among the nations. They've divided up My land. Hey, any discussion about whether or not Jerusalem should remain unified or East Jerusalem should go to the Palestinians or West Jerusalem to the Jews, someone really ought to consult the one who owns the land and that is the Lord God. Who is not happy when people try and divvy up land that He gave to Israel. And right here in Joel, we get this. We see that part of the judgment against the nations of the world is what they did. You know, carving it up. Giving plots to this person and that person. Scattering His people throughout the countries as has happened time and time again and selling out His children. Jesus verified the judgment of nations. Matthew 25, verse 32. He says, all the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And the standard of judgment for sheep and goats, sheep is good, goats bad in this parable. The standard of judgment, Jesus says, the king will say to these, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Matthew 25.40 These brothers of mine, Israel, the Jewish people. How you treat my people is going to determine whether your nation exists in the Millennial Kingdom. Wait, wait, wait. Entire nations? Yeah, we know the nations of the world are going to go up and celebrate Sukkot. Zechariah 14 tells us. God lists specific nations that will be in existence throughout the prophets during this thousand year reign of Christ. But the decision rests on how the nations treated Israel. Good or bad. The treatment of Israel would determine their entrance into the kingdom as a nation. Again, we're not talking about individuals here. But I'll tell you something else that's interesting to me. For anyone of any nation to enter into the millennial kingdom, they have to do so by the name of Christ. What does that tell us? Entire nations of people will be saved in the Millennial Kingdom. Wow. That's huge. That means though mighty Egypt may seem to have fallen when the dust settles, there's a bunch of believers in Egypt who say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. When Syria falls, there are a bunch of Christians in Syria. You see what I'm saying? And they will gather to worship the Lord. Massive, massive numbers of people, tribulation saints who are going to come to faith in Jesus on the night of the day of the Lord. Verse 4. He gives some historical picture now for this judgment. He says, Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre and Zidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? By the way, Tyre and Zidon is Lebanon. Lebanon. 
which is pretty firmly in the hands of Hezbollah, and Philistia is Gaza, in the hands of Hamas. You rendering me a recompense? But if you do recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense on your head. Since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my precious treasures to your temples, and sold the sons of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their territory, behold, I'm going to arouse them from the place where you sold them and return your recompense on your head. I will also sell your sons and your daughters into the hands of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans. The Sabaeans are a people down in Saudi Arabia. To a distant nation... For the Lord has spoken. This is remarkable in its historical accuracy. Things that happened as a reference point for this property. Things that if if we had the time tonight, we could look at the historical record that he's describing here and see what these nations did to the Jewish people and how God's going to turn that right back on their heads. And it's a picture of God dealing with the nations. Some of these things happened more than 500 years after Joel spoke this prophecy. Jews were sold as slaves to the Greeks. Alexander the Great's Greek army. And the Greeks at that time, Jews were sold in droves among them. They were removed from the land even at that time. They would continue to be removed from the land over time as you know. But then and now, the Lord challenges the nations of the world. This is, by the way, this is why we talk about America. This is why I deal with our nation. This is why I say things that you might consider politically incorrect or political at all or offensive. Because truth has got to be recognized by every nation and this happens to be the nation that we sit in. The nation of which I am a citizen. I am first and foremost a citizen of heaven. But I've got dual citizenship that I've got to deal with here. And because of my citizenship in America, this nation has got to deal with the Lord. Right now, this nation is not dealing with the Lord very well. In fact, this nation is turning its back to the Lord, ignoring the Lord, ignoring the word of the Lord. And tragically, it's infecting aspects of the church as well. We've got to deal with the Lord. Every individual will, of course, have to give an accounting. Every, all Christians are going to have to give an accounting to the Lord. Did you know that? Not for your salvation. You have that by grace. But He's still going to say, Hey, what would you do with what I gave you? How did you spend those talents, those gifts? And there will be a recompense. There will be gifts given to the church. It's beautiful. Every individual has to give an accounting of themselves to the Lord. Non-Christians who will have to account for why they decided to rebel. And every nation is going to have to account for itself and its policies before the Lord God. And our nation better think good and hard about the trajectory that we're on right now. Matthew 25, verse 33, tells us He will put the goats on the left. Verse 41, He says, Then He will say to those on His left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Things interesting. It's sheep and goats. It's not elephants and donkeys. (laughs) Far be it for any nation to despise God's people Israel. Because Jesus, the greatest Jew who ever lived, is coming and His recompense is with him. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8. 
after glory. He has sent me against the nations which plunder you, Israel. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. The apple, that's the pupil. How do you feel when something gets close to the pupil of your eye? I had LASIK eye surgery back when I was 40. It's, it's, it's all going away now. I can't even see any of you. I don't even know if anyone's really here tonight. <laughs> but I had LASIK eye surgery, and you know, they put that, the drops in your eyes, and they numb the eyes, and you lie there, and you watch this laser coming at your eye, and there's nothing you can do about it. You just stare and go, no, 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 no. Oh, that feels weird. <laughs> We protect the apple of our eye as, as with our lives. You know, come at me with a pencil. I'm, you know, protect the eyes. And that's how God feels about Israel. Israel is the apple of his eye, the very pupil of his eye. And the me in Zechariah 2 verse 8, and we'll see this when we get to Zechariah, Lord willing, the me may very well be Jesus. Listen again. After glory, he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. It's Jesus speaking. Why do you think that? Well, we'll see when we get to Zechariah. Verse 9. So verse 9, he continues. He says, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. You take all your farming implements now and make them into weapons. It's the opposite of what will happen in the kingdom. And let the weak say, I'm a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Daniel talks about this exact same scene. Daniel chapter 11, verses 41 through 45. Jot that down and note that. You can look at that. He describes this this massive gathering in this valley of the nations of the world. Antichrist is there. He has thrown down the gauntlet. His demon frogs (laughs) are going out and saying, Go to Megiddo, go to Megiddo, go to Megiddo. And everybody's gathering there for this massive war. And in the second psalm, David wrote of a time when the Lord would laugh as mankind gathered its strongest and best, its most powerful, which in the Lord's eyes is puny and weak. Psalm 2 verse 4, He who sits in in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And I've shared before, it's a laughter of incredulity which looks at people who think they're so powerful, so mighty, and goes, are you kidding? Really? You're going to bring... Oh, you've got your big nuclear bombs. Oh, shaking. The Lord is laughing at this ridiculous show of human strength and might, which is nothing. It's nothing to Him. Psalm 2, verse 5, David says, Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. It will mess with the Lord. Verse 13, Put a sickle in, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Bible students, Does that ring a bell? John obviously read the prophet Joel. 
But John is not just repeating a prophecy. John confirms the prophecy. Revelation chapter 14. Let me just read it to you. He says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in the sickle and reap, for the hour has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And another angel, the one who has power over fire, oh yeah, that one, came out from the altar, and he called out with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. And so the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. You Bible students know it is the length of the valley of Megiddo. Joel speaks this prophecy. John confirms it. The other prophets speak it as well of the day of the Lord, of this massive engagement in the valley of Megiddo, also called here the valley of Jehoshaphat, also called, verse 14, the valley of decision. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Now, perhaps you've heard that verse used in an evangelistic meeting or campaign. A pastor standing up and speaking out to all the people gathered and saying, You are standing in the valley of decision. Now is the time to make a choice. Make your choice for Jesus now. Now is your chance to decide in the valley of decision. And in this age, we get to make a choice. We, we have a decision to receive the saving grace of Jesus or reject Him. Right now, yes, we stand in the valley of decision. But please understand, on that day, the decision is the Lord's. This is not the time for people to decide. Well, okay, I guess I'll go with God. He won after all. I'll be on His team. You don't, have, you don't make the choice after the game is lost. This decision is the decision of the Lord. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. The word decision is karutz. We saw this recently. It means either a threshing sledge for tearing up the fallow ground or, and in this case, it means a judicial verdict. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of God's judgment. Jehoshaphat, God judges. And here, here He will make the final decisions as to who goes where. Verse 15. The sun and moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for His people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. I love that. There is no greater stronghold than the Lord. There is no other refuge. And yet the nation of Israel today still hasn't learned this. Hasn't figured it out that no international alliances will sustain them. 
So if America turns its back on Israel, so be it. The Lord has not. That no amount of weaponry or training in the IDF can save them. The Israeli Air Force is the best in the world. Do you know that? These guys are nuts. I mean, they take risks that no thinking pilot would take, but they are so well trained and so sharp and so on the edge, they pull it off. They will not save Israel. They are not the stronghold. They are not the refuge. Not even the undeclared nuclear arsenal at Demona will save Israel. Only the Lord. He's the stronghold. Psalm 18, verse 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. He is Israel's stronghold. Is He yours? Do you run to the Lord when things are shaky at work? Do you find yourself turning to your resume? Send this out quick. When things are rocky at home, do you find yourself going to other people? When things are difficult in your family or in your life? Or do you go to the stronghold? The Lord is the stronghold of Israel and grafted in, He's here to be your stronghold as well. And there is such peace and there is such security and there is such joy in the Lord. And by the way, It says the Lord who roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. Guess who that is? That's Jesus roaring from Zion. That's Jesus uttering His voice from Jerusalem. And gang, He may have spoke gently in the past. He is going to boom on that day. He's not going to need a megaphone. The world is going to hear our Lord Jesus. And Philippians 2.10, I say it again, tells us at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the day. And it's coming and it will happen. Verse 17, Then you will know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, as Jesus will, my holy mountain, And so Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. What does that mean? Strangers will pass through it no more. The word strangers is zur and it means foreigners or illegal aliens. And of course that's the buzz right now in the news for us. Because our borders are so fluid right now the illegals are pouring in like crazy. And when I say illegal, you know, it's funny. We're not really supposed to say illegal. That's politically incorrect. It's illegal to say illegals. Isn't that what you are when you're breaking the law? I'm just saying. Why? Think about this. Why do we have citizenship? Now, I'm not going to go political on you. Trust me. Or not. Why why do we have citizenship and border crossings and visas? There's a reason for it. It's a good reason. Every country has it. Security is number one. So we know who's coming in and going out. So we can track what's going on. You would think 13 years ago on 9-11 we would have learned the lesson. We clearly have not. But citizenship, it's not just about security. It's also about loyalty. I'm not just here to get what I can out of this country and leave. I'm here to be part of this. And to be part of this, I'm going to go through the process because I believe in what this country stands for. Okay, loyalty. 
Transparency. Here's who I am. By the way, I know everybody's worried about right now the NSA and, and everybody knowing everything about us and we've given up our privacy. By the way, we did that the moment we signed up for Facebook. <laughs> Here I am, world! I just burped. going to put that in Facebook. And it's amazing to me what people will post. We gave that up. But I'll tell you what, if you're walking with the Lord, hey, rifle through my stuff. i got nothing to hide. I'm walking with Jesus. I'm not doing anything unlawful. No one will be in Jerusalem who is not a citizen of the kingdom. No one will pass through it who does, listen, who does not know and is not known by the Lord Jesus Christ. The millennial kingdom will begin with a worldwide global Christian population. Can you even imagine? The whole world is going to be believers in Jesus. Not just believers, people of faith in Jesus. Because as I said earlier, to walk into the millennial kingdom, to exist in that thousand year reign of Christ, you have faith in Jesus. That's where it starts. Now all of those who have faith in Jesus at that time will bear children, Isaiah tells us. And there will be offspring and there will be a great growth of population and those children and their children's children and their children's children's children all the way down the line during that thousand years will have to make a choice for Jesus just like everybody else. But there will be no stranger passing through Jerusalem. No foreigner. (laughs) I can just imagine this. Jesus on His throne going, Hey Bob, how's it going? Hey Susie, how's it going? Hey Chuck, what's up? You know, He'll know everybody. So the prophetic message here of Joel ends with the entrance into the Millennial Kingdom and a great contrast. A contrast between God's favor to Israel and God's fury against the nations. Verse 18, In that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. First of all, sweet wine. I know there are some who will say, Rick, you've really hammered on alcohol recently and there it is, sweet wine. The mountains are dripping. What, are we supposed to not drink it? I'm thinking the sweet wine here is probably something Welch's couldn't even touch. Just saying. And a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim. Shittim means acacias. The valley of the acacia trees. Some of you have been there. It is the valley today, the region known as the Dead Sea. And the only thing that really grows there, aside from the Israeli farms that they have developed, the stuff that grows naturally there, acacia trees, because they stand up in the desert. You Bible students may remember the acacia is what the Ark of the Covenant was built out of. Why? Because it was the easiest wood to find in the desert. So this this land of, of, of acacia trees, the Valley of Shittim, I love this. Ezekiel forty five or forty seven beautifully describes this exact spring. Note this that will go out from the house of the Lord. Do you remember studying this? Those of you who are here, first the spring starts as a trickle beside the doorway there. It's ankle deep as it runs along the the promenade there, the house of the Lord. And then it gets knee deep 
and then loin deep. And finally, Ezekiel tells us it becomes a river that cannot be forded. A huge river that splits supernaturally and goes two directions. One direction to the west out to the Med Sea and then the other to the east out to the Dead Sea. This mighty river flowing down to the Valley of Acacias, the dry, arid, rocky region of the Dead Sea. Ezekiel 47 verse 10 says, It will come about that fishermen will stand beside it. From Engedi to Eneglaim, there will be a place for the spreading of nets. And their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the Great Sea. That's like the fish in the Mediterranean. Same kind of fish are going to be swimming around in what was once the Dead Sea. But it's now a whole new beautiful sea, this pure water flowing down and healing the waters. And I want you to think about this. The mighty Mississippi River, at its widest, is a mile and a half. The Nile River, at its widest, four and a half miles. If I'm right in my understanding that this river is flowing from Engedi all the way north to Eneglaim, that's 22 miles. That is a river 22 miles wide rushing all the way down into the Dead Sea region and bringing it completely to life. It's going to be amazing. I can't wait to see this. And it's all going to begin as a trickle in the house of the Lord. By the way, that's how His Holy Spirit works. Oftentimes He will begin just as a little stream in your heart. You receive the Lord and He begins to work. But that stream begins to get deeper and deeper and deeper until finally He is a river that cannot be stopped. He is living waters flowing from within you and flowing out. That's God's desire to water us with His Spirit. 22 miles wide. There's going to be probably little estuaries and, and streamlets all over the place rushing down and filling the crevices and the cracks and healing the land. Zechariah 14 verse 8 says, In that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea, and it will be in summer as well as in winter. This is a year-round flow. Verse 19. Now that's favor, verse 19, and Egypt will become a waste. And Edom, which is the midsection, well, south southern uh, Jordan right now, and Edom will become a desolate wilderness, already is, by the way. Not a pretty place. Because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they have shed innocent blood. And I'll just point this out to you, we'll talk about it more when we get to Obadiah, but the word violence there is... Hamas. In Arabic, Hamas means enthusiasm. In Hebrew, Hamas means violence. Verse 20, But Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem for all generations. And I will avenge their blood which I have not avenged for the Lord dwells in Zion. And this remarkable prophecy that began with a plague of locusts now ends with God restoring to Israel the years that the locusts have eaten. The beautiful kingdom. He turns it all completely around. And by the way, note the very special ending here. It's similar to Ezekiel. If you were to look back at Ezekiel 48, at the end of his major 48 chapter prophecy, it ends in Jerusalem with the saying, Yahweh Shema, the Lord is there. Well, Joel, 
writing prior to Ezekiel, ends his minor three-chapter prophecy with a similarly epic conclusion, Yahweh Shochen Betzion, which means the Lord dwells in Zion. What a promise for the Jewish people. But don't forget as we close tonight that the promise for the Jewish people, and I believe us as well, that the Lord dwells in Zion. Listen, the outpouring of His Holy Spirit, which began 2,000 years ago at Pentecost, and continues to all who receive Him by faith, is proof positive that the Lord dwells in us here tonight. Yes, He will dwell in Zion. Yes, we will see Jesus there. But right now, His Holy Spirit is our refuge, our stronghold. And He dwells right in the heart of the believer. Praise the Lord. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for these things that You unravel before us and reveal. And I pray there will be a great encouragement among us tonight. Lord, all kinds of things continue to go on in our world and it's discouragement after discouragement after discouragement on a personal level. Lord, sometimes on a political level, on a national and international level. We see all these things and we can just get bummed. But Lord, You are our stronghold. And You dwell here among us. And I pray, Lord, strength and peace and security be our blessing tonight as we trust in and we name the Lord Jesus as our Christ, our Savior, and our God. And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.